god of theirs. It's only lightning caused by the thunderclouds. Oh, you can't be scared of that. Look at them. Ignorant, primitive savages. Frightened to death by a little lightning up in the sky. And you're no better. <laughs> Thunder ain't thunder. Yes, yes, it is thunder. That's ridiculous. Just in case, let us pray. I, I don't believe in superstition. You pray. saw it on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Keep in mind this isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give this film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. What you have right here is a bonus episode, and you are most welcome for that. It's going to be the last thing we release for Season 2, and that sees us taking on the 1962 kaiju cult classic, King Kong vs. Godzilla. Join us! If you had walked up to me at the age of five and asked me what my favorite film was, I would have blurted out, of course, Star Wars. And in saying that, I would have actually told you that meant I liked the entire Star Wars trilogy interchangeably. It was a non-starter. I was annoying. But if you asked me, okay, fine, what's your second favorite film? Not Star Wars. I would have told you then just as fast it was King Kong vs. Godzilla. Maybe it was Kismet a perfect and marvelous chance that I would become obsessed with a film that was released 20 years to the date before I was born. I was a dinosaur kid, I was a burgeoning monster kid, and this had both. And when I got to sit down for the first time and watch it play out on a Saturday afternoon when it showed on TBS in 1987, it completely transmogrified me on a cellular level. I was obsessed with both King Kong and Godzilla. I couldn't get enough of them. Case in point, when I was in first grade, we had all been assigned the task of rewriting the story of Cinderella. You know, kids, you've heard the story, now make your own version. Well, for me, and the version I turned in to be graded, Godzilla was Cinderella, King Kong was the prince, and like any well-adjusted child would do, I had Godzilla incinerate her stepmother and her wicked stepsisters in a spray of radioactive fire. 
I figure there's a psychologist out there somewhere who's patiently waiting for the day that I will just show up in their office so they can finally finance that boat they've always wanted. I would bug my father each week when the Sunday paper would come, asking him to point out if there would be any Godzilla movies the following weekend. And to his credit, he would let me know, begrudgingly, of course. I would sit through any movie I could find that had a large ape in it. Son of Kong, Mighty Joe Young, Dino De Laurentiis' King Kong, the 76 remake, of course. And, of course, I would love the good old-fashioned 1933 original recipe. I would go to the library, and I would obsessively check out the Crestwood House Monster Series books, which, in hindsight, they were utterly trash. Essentially, the author, Ian Thorne, was either a genius or he was the laziest man ever. I haven't quite decided yet. As his book series about movie monsters, they were aimed at children, but they were really nothing more than a series of black and white photos that looked like they were third or fourth run Xeroxed out of a poorly maintained copy of Famous Monsters magazine. And they all had these little small paragraphs that would give such sparse information, and worse, when the information wasn't there to be had, Thorne would seemingly just make it up. Here, here's a sample. This is out of his Crestwood book on Godzilla. Movie monsters that make a lot of money, they never die. And Godzilla was a blockbuster. So the monster returned. Its head was slightly changed. It did not look so mindless, so primitive as it had before. The second Japanese monster movie was called Gigantus the Fire Monster. Gigantus, a female monster, was discovered on an island. She was fighting another fire-breathing creature that resembled a spiky armadillo. Alright, so what do we have there? Well, bored editorializing on the monster's features aside, Thorne is commenting on the 1959 Godzilla raids again, which, yes, stateside was released under that aforementioned Gigantus title. But, more to the point. When they say the name Spiky Armadillo, through the entire goddamn movie, they actually give the monster a name. And what's more, it was part of the Toho Kaiju Pantheon, the Mighty Anguirus. Geez, if you're going to write a series of books about monsters and films to be enjoyed by children, and you don't even take the time to get the information right, what's the point? I'm sorry to do this to all you folks out there, especially to you ladies listening, because I hope, really, that I'm not turning you on too much with this attention to detail. But again, these books, they may have been trash, and they may have been wrong, but it didn't stop me from running out and checking all of them out as much as I could, over and over again. I was particularly delighted at the clipped image of Kong on the back cover of the book, who would suggest that the children read about his other friends, like the Blob, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, as if Kong is just going on weekends and hanging out with the other movie monsters. And for the record, I did. When I turned six, in what must have mercifully been a great relief to my parents, I was allowed to go to Toys R Us and pick some gift out for myself. I went to the store and went to the very back where all the bins of the cheap rubber figures were, and with a little digging and some help from my mother, I was able to secure my very own imperial brand King Kong figure, and in the bin right next to his, I found a matching Godzilla to complete the set. I believe that combined purchase might have set my folks back 
$12, and I carried these bastards everywhere that I went. Not without some issue, I might say. Uh, Kong's gorilliness was very emphasized, you know, bare chest, and oddly enough, a very pronounced smooth bare butt. My older cousin Andrea would often tell me, your King Kong's naked, you need to tell him to put on some clothes, much to my chagrin. As I record this now, both figures are resting on a shelf not 10 feet to my left, a testament both to my pack rat tendencies and to the warm place that they still hold in my heart. But you don't care about my toy collection or my awkward and misspent youth, you came here for some monster film talk. And, you know, this one comes with its very own bizarre backstory as to just what kind of skullduggery had to be done to get a film like this made. Believe it or not, this was originally going to be an American film, a story that sprang from the mind of King Kong's original animator and puppeteer, Willis O'Brien. You see, Miriam Cooper may have dreamed up the story of King Kong, and he directed and produced the film, but it was Willis O'Brien who created the armature, and who actually breathed life into the character by designing and animating the ape. It was his Kong design and his dinosaur creations that made this film so unique and so popular. O'Brien had been designing dinosaurs since 1925's The Lost World. And he did work on other classic films, like the sequels, Son of Kong, he did Mighty Joe Young, The Giant Behemoth, and The Black Scorpion. The man was no slouch. And he was right there at the end of the tail end of the 50s when O'Brien got to thinking that, you know, he had really another great idea left inside of him. Why doesn't he make another King Kong film? So what does he do? He writes up a treatment, and he puts together some concept art that he figures he can pitch to RKO. He would make a traditional stop-motion Kong, albeit he would do it in an updated fashion, but here's where there would be a unique story twist. He would take our giant, furry ape, and they would go to the city of San Francisco, where Kong would encounter and then fight a gigantic version of the classic, universal Frankenstein's monster. You know plausible. Now, to his credit, O'Brien didn't just assume anything. He was under the impression that he, as creating of the character, had some rights to the likeness in the image, but he realized RKO probably owned most of the story itself. And what he wanted to do was go to RKO, talk to them, and kind of get them to partner with him. And while he's setting this all up and laying out his story and his art and his concepts, he starts reaching out to a friend of his, a man named John Beck, who was a film producer over at Universal Studios. Um, at that time, Beck's biggest claim to fame was the 1950s film Harvey with Jimmy Stewart. He tells Beck his idea. Beck loves it and tells him, don't worry, I will see what I can do about getting permission from Universal to use Frankenstein. You just keep doing what you're doing. Jack Pierce over at Universal, who designed the monster for the 1931 film, hears about this pitch and he just says, no dice, you're, you're not using my Frankenstein. Take your ape and keep walking. So O'Brien and Beck, knowing that Frankenstein as a story is in the public domain, they end up changing their pitch. It's just going to be called King Kong vs. Prometheus, a play on Shelley's original title for her novel. While all of this is going down, RKO itself had been going through a period of restructuring. 
After being poorly ran for a number of years and then basically corporately raided by an indifferent Howard Hughes for almost a decade, the studio was finally sold off in 1952 to the General Tire and Rubber Company, although you would probably know them now as their production falls under the name GenCorp. They restructured the company so that all of the picture, radio, and television production would fall under the general jurisdiction of a singular entity, which just became known as RKO General. With this new broom sweeps clean attitude, RKO General turns to O'Brien when he comes calling in 1959 with his pitch and tells him, you can't make a King Kong picture, we own Kong, we will make a King Kong picture if anyone is going to. But the original director and producer of Kong, Marion C. Cooper, he gets wind of this project being bandied about, and he enters into the fray, announcing, hey RKO, hey O'Brien, you're both wrong. I own the character rights to King Kong. O'Brien, you may have been the artist, but I created the story. And RKO General, I only leased the character to RKO for two pictures, Kong and Son of Kong. So none of you can do this without either getting me involved or I get a cut. I own Kong. Now, to his credit, on paper, Cooper actually had the strongest claim here. He did create the original source story for the 1933 film, and he had documentation from the 1930s showing that he had indeed only leased the character to RKO for the two films. According to Cooper biographer Mark Cadavaz, Cooper even tried to bring forth documentation from his contemporaries at the time, like former studio head David O. Selznick, to prove his claims. Now, while all this sort of character rights clusterfuck was going down, John Beck this entire time has been traveling around pitching the film idea to anybody with a pulse who will listen to him. And he also quietly didn't wait around to see what O'Brien was going to do next. So Beck took the story treatment and he hired someone to turn it into a proper screenplay, contacting and paying writer George Worthington Yates, who had already, you know, penned his share of large monster films. The man wrote Them, The Amazing Colossal Man, Earth vs. the Spider, and The War of the Colossal Beast. He knows his stick. He gets Yates to pen this script, and then Beck quietly just keeps pitching, telling folks, do you like King Kong? I have a great story to tell you. The hard part about this pitch, though, is nobody really wants to spend the time and the money working on a stop-motion Kong gorilla that's very costly. Beck, though, finally gets a nibble when he takes the concept over to the good folks at Toho, where they discuss the idea for the film and they like it, although they'd like to modify it to include their own intellectual property. So, Godzilla. This would be the moment, and I'll get to that later, that they shelve the concept of a gigantic Frankenstein just so they can have Kong fight their very own atomic breathing lizard. To them, it all fits very nicely. This would be one of their big films that would get released in 1962, which would coincide with Toho's 30th anniversary as a studio. Beck says, sure we can trade it out and you can use Godzilla. Do whatever you want. Beck sells the story and the script rights over to Toho, and he then wheels and deals it so that Universal International gets to distribute the film in America, with Beck owning the rights to make the English version of that film. He cuts out everybody else over stateside. I make that deal. How about you, you bitch? You make that deal? I make that deal. I don't blame you. Damn good deal. 
This leaves a dumbfounded O'Brien, RKO, General Studio Heads, and Cooper all left standing out in the cold, arguing that Beck shouldn't have made that deal as he didn't own the characters, but unable to agree amongst themselves who actually did. This was not a stop-motion Kong. This was going to be a live-action guy in a gorilla suit. He was going to be from a different island. He was going to have a different story arc. O'Brien, you're the artist. We're not using your art. And Cooper, you may have had the legal rights to the other character in the original film and the sequel, and even some extended publishing rights for both a novelization and for a comic adaptation, but that's where it ended. RKO General was still found to have some shaky legal standing, so Toho would quietly make a side payment to the studio for $220,000 as a way to smooth over any other questions regarding the rights to the creature itself. But that's it. Beck's attorneys made it very clear to anyone else who came complaining. You get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! Production would move forward, and Toho, again, got director Ishiro Honda, who at this point was an old pro at filming for giant kaiju films, having directed both the original 1954 Godzilla and 1956's Rodan, as well as 1958's Varin the Unbelievable and 1961's Mothra. Honda wanted to approach the story from the perspective that he was creating an active satire of the current television arms race that was going on with Japanese TV for the day. You see, TV networks and advertisers in the mid to late 1950s would perform and promote an ever-escalating series of publicity stunts and gimmicks to attract the viewers to sell their products, getting rather far afield of delivering quality entertainment or quality goods. Instead, they would focus on gonzo antics to attempt to stay competitive. For the Japanese, the insertion of Kong into their country is a spoof of what companies were doing of the day. Why would capturing a giant ape to show it on TV make anyone want to buy what someone else is selling? Thus, this was Honda's own way of just showing how arrogant, silly, and disrespectful Japanese television marketing was towards its own viewers, a point that can often be missed when viewing the American cut of the film. Now, Honda brought with him the special effects director, E.G. Subaraya, who had planned on coming at this film from a more light-hearted vain, at least than the other previous Godzilla outings. He wanted families to be able to see this. And so Subaraya was putting together what Toho's Kong was going to look like. He wanted something unique, and in his words, he wanted him to be comical, but not frightening for children. He based the face of Kong on a Japanese macaque, which those groovy hot tub snow monkeys that reside throughout the Japanese archipelago, that's exactly what he was trying to make Kong look like. And, you know, that's an easy way also to keep RKO from, again, sniffing around trying to sue them for any perceived copyright infringement. Look, I love this movie, but I gotta point out, Kong really here is less of an ape, and he's more of, I don't know, a drunken troll-like creature who... I think stumbled into a factory where he was accidentally sprayed with some glue and then somebody had some DuPont number 7346 brown shag carpet and they stuck it to him. In seeing this film, there is no way any reasonable person though could say that Toho's mock-up of Kong looked anything like the classic 1933 version. For the giant octopus that Kong battles, four animals were actually filmed crushing miniatures first, and then certain stop-motion effects were utilized for the creature grabbing and throwing the islanders who tried to oppose it. 
two full-size rubber prop octopi were created. You know, one for a close-up in the scene where it goes on and wraps around Kong's face, and then another one just for Kong to kind of punch, grapple, and attempt to remove that slippery cephalopod from his own frame. All that said, with this film, for my money, this is the Godzilla design that is my personal favorite of the Showa-era films. He's a little bulkier in the legs, his eyes are bigger, he's lost the ears from his head, and he's been subtly changed, at least with his skull shape. It's a little more elongated, and it makes him more dinosaur and reptilian-like, which, when you compare to what the character would eventually turn into as years rolled on, this still looks kind of like a menacing prehistoric Godzilla to me, at least. Kong would be performed by actor Sochi Hiroshi, and Godzilla would be performed by Haru Nakajima, an actor who had previously performed him in the last two films that Godzilla appeared in. They were given free reign to choreograph their fight scenes, and they came up with a series of elaborate wrestling moves that they modeled after Japanese pro wrestling of the day. The fights here actually looked pretty decent, but the conditions were rough on the actors, with Hiroshi having to be sewn into his suit each day, sometimes for hours at a time, uncomfortably stewing in his own sweat. This was all shot in the spring of 1962 on a budget of about $420,000, and Toho felt they were really poised to have a hit. They would go on to release their version of the film that same year in August. Beck, who again, he had retained the rights to shoot his own version after attending the Japanese premiere, went and utilized director Tom Montgomery to add in alternate insert shots, do new voice dubbing work, and most importantly, film all of the strange American news reports that give a lot of story exposition as to what we're actually seeing on the screen, supposedly making it make more sense. All of that said, back back about 15 grand and then he promptly turned around and sold his cut of the film to Universal International for a cool $200,000. And the following year, in April of 1963, would be when the film version of the US film would hit stateside and that's the one I'm going to be talking about today. Now, there's quite a bit more that we can get into, but folks, this is just a bonus episode. And you've been ever so patient. So what do you say? How about I stop talking and we just get to that trailer? Rivals, there is no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. 
King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision, shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground, holding a beautiful girl in his grasp. See Godzilla destroy an entire army. See King Kong trapped by the blazing barrier of a billion volts. But nothing, nobody can stop the great showdown when King Kong and Godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest. on UN news broadcaster Eric Carter, is played by Michael Keith, dropping an exposition bomb on all of us, keeping us up to date on the events of the day, which include strange iceberg activity going on in the Bering Strait, and giving us the latest, hottest news on how the Japanese fishing fleet is coping with the influx of icebergs and cold waters into Japanese fishing territory. The UN has dispatched a U.S. submarine loaded with scientists who will try to explain these warming trends of the northern waters. Carter then pivots, giving us an update on the work of a Japanese scientist who has discovered an important medical breakthrough on a remote island in the Pacific, Faroe Island. Japanese scientist Akiro Makino, winner of last year's Nobel Prize for Medicine, claims to have made a rather amazing discovery in the field of chemotherapy. These red berries, discovered in his latest field trip in the Bougainville area, produce a non-habit-forming narcotic effect. Unfortunately, he reports, the berries grow in only one small, remote, primitive island, and the natives there are reluctant to give them up. It seems animals are fond of this fruit, and the berries are ground into juice by the natives to placate a, quote, mysterious god, unquote, who lives on the island. The god is supposedly an enormous creature that no one has ever seen, but who is rumored to be taller than many of their mountains. Dr. Makino would make no comment on whether such a creature exists or not, but the Pacific Pharmaceutical Company, Dr. Makino's employer, claims he does exist. They also claim that the reason he is such a giant is because he eats Dr. Makino's berries. There is one thing we can be certain of, that these berries will produce and that is a giant advertising campaign. One doesn't have to be Karnak to guess where that's leading. And now, we get to tie all of this into advertising men for the Pacific Pharmaceutical Company and their interest in both those berries and in the giant creature that Dr. Makino has heard about. Mr. Taco, as played by Ichiro Arashima, sends his two top men, Osamu Sakurai, as played by Tedo Takashima, and Kinsaburo Furu, as played by Yu Fujinki, to go get the monster and to boost their sponsored TV show with his presence. We then get to see Sakurai enjoying a night with his sister, Fumiko, as played by Mihama, and his best friend and her boyfriend, Katsu Fujima, as played by Kenji Sahara. Where they all get together, they talk about work and about this cutting-edge wire that Fujita's company makes. Supposedly, it's stronger than steel, and he convinces Sakurai to take some with him on the expedition. 
We then get to cut to the brave men on the Seahawk, who, for some inexplicable reason, decide that the best way to understand an iceberg is to crash right into one. Commander Roberts, as played by Douglas Fine, attempts to radio for help, but suddenly Godzilla erupts from inside the iceberg, apparently been catching a nap in there, and he commences to roast all of the men alive on the sub. He then decides to move on and attack a military base on the mainland, melting some of their cute radio-controlled tanks. Furu and Sakurai end up reaching Faru Island, and after a seeming sort of a standoffish exchange with the local natives, they finally are welcomed as guests, sharing music and cigarettes with all who come up to them. The natives then spend their time grinding berries to make giant vats of berry juice to be consumed by the angry god. They are both dismissive of talk of the giant until they hear dreadful roars and screams coming from the mountains, and then after that Sakurai starts to believe there might be something out there. Back on the home front, Fumiko reads in the newspaper that an airplane full of people has crashed on its way to Hokkaido, and she fears that Fujita might have been on it. Needing to know if he was one of the 27 survivors, she ends up going to Hokkaido, just as the government is evacuating people before Godzilla arrives at the city proper. We then get to cut back to Carter for some fun junk science. I see Eric Carter is ready with Dr. Arnold Johnson in New York. Go ahead, New York. Thank you, Japan. This is Eric Carter in New York. Dr. Arnold Johnson is curator of the New York Museum for Natural History and an esteemed authority on prehistoric animals. Dr. Johnson, you've uh, agreed to explain to us some of Godzilla's history. I said I would attempt to explain. After examining photographs of Godzilla taken by the ICS, I tend to classify him as a prehistoric species of dinosaur possibly a cross between the gigantic Tyrannosaurus rex and the Stegosaurus, which is sometimes known as the plated dinosaur. Roughly, this uh, particular form of reptile existed somewhere between 97 and 125 million years ago. Well, that seems an impossibly long period of time for anything to remain alive, even frozen inside of an iceberg. Well, in Mexico, they found a frog which they think lay dormant for two million years. In Japan, flowers bloomed recently from lotus seeds, 3,000 years old. The fact that Godzilla is here and alive forces us to reconsider many theories on suspended animation. Dr. Johnson, you stated Godzilla would definitely come to Japan. What makes you believe this? Fossils found in Japan resemble Godzilla. Also, he headed instinctively for Japan like a salmon returning to the waters in which he was born. It's my opinion Godzilla thinks he's heading home. Our modern weapons seem to have no effect on Godzilla. Have you any suggestions as to how he can be stopped? Well, I know the atom bomb is being considered, but uh, that would be more destructive than the creature itself. As a reptile, Godzilla might shy away from electricity, but uh, at this time, I wouldn't care to hazard a guess. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Again, I'd like to point out how interesting it is that a reporter with the UN would have such information on an expedition done by a private company thousands of miles away, and apropos of nothing. Back on Faro Island, Foru is panicking and blaming all of his ills on painful foot corns as an excuse not to go searching for the monster. 
A young boy is sent to fetch berry juice for him to ease his pain and allow him to sleep. And while the boy is preparing to gather it, a giant octopus comes out of the sea and begins to attack the village, apparently after the berry juice? Spears and bullets don't seem to have much effect on the large, slimy invertebrate, but suddenly... The monster god makes his appearance, and King Kong is on the scene. After a bit of grappling, he ends up throwing the octopus down onto the beach and pelts it with rocks until it leaves, much to the praise of the natives. Then, while the natives sing to him, Kong decides to treat himself to some libations, and he guzzles a few pots of the berry juice while the natives all serenade. He then collapses, um, not drunk on the beach of the island, snoring while the natives gather around. This allows for Sakurai and Furu to tie him up with the miracle wire, and then tow the ape back to Tokyo, which of course gives us some more excellent opportunities for exposition. Yoshiotako of Tokyo Television reports that the giant god of Faroe Island, an enormous gorilla known as King Kong, has been captured and is being brought to Tokyo. Mr. Taco claims ownership for himself and the Pacific Pharmaceutical Company and is flying out to greet his expedition. What about this, Dr. Johnson? Legends of giant gorillas have persisted for some time. Now, the fact that Kong and Godzilla have appeared at the same time is interesting, scientifically. Godzilla has a brain about this size. He is sheer brute force while Kong is a thinking animal. His brain is considerably larger, about 10 times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there is no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. But our latest reports show that Godzilla has disappeared. Keeping this in mind, do you still believe he will attack Japan? I do. Being amphibious, Godzilla is probably lurking in the ocean depths off Japan, where the depths go to about 20,000 fathoms. He could be puzzled at the changes that have taken place during his long sleep. But I have no doubt that when he decides to return to land, he'll select Japan. How does that sound in Tokyo? Not very good. The army is up to full strength, and evacuation plans for all cities are underway. What about the arrival of Kong? King Kong has the strength to tear Tokyo apart with his bare hands. The government has no intention of giving him the chance. The Japanese Defense Force does manage to interrupt the ship that's bringing Kong back, and they order them to take him all the way back to Faroe Island. They don't need two monsters right now. Kong, though, ends up waking up, and he breaks free from the giant raft and ends up swimming to Japan anyway. We also get to learn that Fujita was forced to work late, and he never took that flight to Hokkaido. But now he finds himself racing to the city to find Fumiko. And of course, as she takes a train into the city, they're attacked by Godzilla along the way. He does end up finding her, even as Godzilla is prowling the countryside. Kong ends up surfacing, and of course runs into Godzilla on the city's outskirts. The ape decides to throw a few boulders towards the giant lizard, but he isn't really ready to prepare himself for the atomic breath. And after Godzilla fires a few, you know, radioactive blasts his way, he beats a hasty retreat. The army digs a huge pit that they fill with gas and explosives, and they do manage to get Godzilla trapped in it. 
Once they lure him in and detonate the explosives, there's a brief moment where they think they finally stopped him. Only to have the giant lizard angrily exit the hole as if it was a minor annoyance. Noticing, though, that Godzilla is avoiding all of the power lines whenever he encounters them, the army begins to set up a hasty ring of high-tension wires all around the city of Tokyo itself, running millions of volts of electricity around themselves as a hasty last resort to keep him away. What they unfortunately hadn't planned on was, apparently, Kong has come to Tokyo as well, and they find a very interesting factoid that the gorilla can draw strength from electricity. Godzilla has crossed the first line of defense. He seems indestructible. On the advice of Dr. Johnson, a blockade of high-tension wires containing more than one million volts of electricity is being hastily linked around Tokyo. It was observed in his attack on the train at Hokkaido that he moves away from the high-tension wires whenever possible. Yet, Dr. Johnson, you have stated that King Kong grows stronger from electricity. Yes. For some reason, we do not yet understand. Kong draws strength from electric voltage. Well, then if the electric blockade stopped Godzilla, it would not stop Kong. No, it would not. Of course, Kong bursts into Tokyo and proceeds to grab and chew on some delicious high-tension wires. He then scoops up the first pretty gal he sees, which, of course, happens to be Fumiko, and then he starts climbing some buildings just for the hell of it. With the army, though, able to create a gas from those special Faroe Island berries, and with Sakurai sharing the native chants that he recorded from his time on the island, they're all quickly able to lull Kong into, well, let's face it, a drunken sleep, saving the traumatized Fumiko, and now they have the ability to secure the sleeping ape and turn him on his opponent. Using more of that special wire and some weather balloons that are towed by helicopters, the Japanese Defense Force is able to airlift Kong to Mount Fuji, where they essentially drop him on Godzilla and let the two of them duke it out. Sakurai and Fujita get to hop into a helicopter to observe the battle, because... yeah, that's why. And they get to watch Kong get his lunch handed to him for at least the first part of the fight, with Godzilla badly burning the ape drop-kicking him, and then delivering a series of horrific clubbing blows to Kong's head with his tail, even when he's down and already knocked out. As a final insult, Godzilla ends up setting fire to the area around the ape before withdrawing, leaving his rival to apparently burn to death. Suddenly, a freak electrical storm crops up, and Kong receives a direct lightning strike to his skull, lighting him up and supercharging him with electricity. This reinvigorates the ape, and he starts in with a host of body slams, throws, and just has a general pummeling of the lizard, before the two of them end up crashing over a cliffside into the Pacific Ocean. With waters churning below, it's anyone's guess as to what's going on. Then, after a period of time, only Kong surfaces, and begins the long swim back to Faroe Island. Godzilla is assumed to have survived, but he's probably gone back into hibernation to heal up. So let's not think about it too hard. And the credits roll as the happy ape who has saved Japan from a larger threat than himself wanders away. So where do you even begin? I would start, I guess, by saying that 
I'm personally curious as to how many children out there saw this film and thought that they themselves, technically mammals, could harness the superpower activated by electricity. I mean, I distinctly remember my mother's absent-minded watching of this film with me and then commenting when the scene came up that I should never do anything like that to shock myself to gain powers. Which leads me to believe that, at least for part of the fandom of King Kong vs. Godzilla, um, the road is paved with the crispy corpses of children who have decided that placing pennies in a light socket is a surefire way to hulk out and be just like their simian hero. Honestly, though, I love the junk science logic that is in a film like this. They just need a quick answer to explain something, and they make it up as they go along. It's so perfectly cheesy, and it's marvelous at the same time. Joking aside, I have sat through this again recently as I put this all together, and there is something I do have a hard time trying to wrap my head around, and that is just how I'm going to be able to put this in context for my nieces and nephews, because, you know, Uncle Chris is going to have them sit down, watch some fun kaiju films when they reach the appropriate age, but how am I going to explain to my siblings and my sister-in-law, and how are they exactly going to feel about the scene where Sakurai and Furu give cigarettes out to little children, particularly a six-year-old native boy, after they both agree it's a bad idea. And then, they do it anyway. Ooh, quick, the smokes. also in love with the concept that this film is predicated that Kong, as soon as he hits the mainland, is going to naturally just hone in on Godzilla and vice versa. It's like they have to attack each other. There was no meeting. It was strictly always going to be versus. The media coverage shifts from can you believe these creatures exist to, well, naturally they're going to fight. They're mortal enemies. Just at the drop of a hat. It's also such a strange phenomenon to see when we're supposed to understand that Godzilla is something that everybody has already known about, but the viewer has to assume that he's been around at least for a couple years since everyone seems to know him from the 1954 film, and yet we constantly have these folks reacting as if it's all brand new information to them. Now, while it's downplayed in the American version, the advertising satire is still in this film, albeit it's a lot less pointed. Mr. Taco here is just a cartoonish character. He's a lovable buffoon in this regard, who just wants bigger ratings for his television show and thus to get more ads for Pacific Pharmaceutical Company. But, you know, he's equally comical when he runs up to the general and demands that he gets to take charge of the situation in using Kong to fight Godzilla. I like how the military just looks him up and down and responds, okie dokie, instead of saying like, no, get out of here, you're just a businessman. I would also like to point out, I am kind of shocked as I have aged to read the number of people who badmouth this film based on how the character of Kong is supposedly portrayed. People seem to think of him as being weak and cowardly, running away from his first fight with Godzilla. 
I would like to offer a rejoinder to that. King Kong traditionally has been walking around beating up dinosaurs for most of his known life. This is the first time one has ever set his ass on fire. Cut the poor ape some slack, huh? Also, I think it's interesting that this is the only kaiju movie I have known at least to date that involves giving the hero monster a really strong narcotic to knock him out on the reg. Don't get me wrong, gassing large monsters to sleep, particularly in Kong's case that's been a running motif in most of his films, I, I get that, but here, Kong is only appeased by the natives with this berry juice that they provide for him constantly. They're always in the process of making special drinks to keep him happy, placated, and honestly, I feel the sight of a passed out, and then later probably a hungover Kong, must be old hat to all those natives by now, at least to anybody who stays on Faroe Island for longer than a week. Now, because of how this film was made, i.e. you have the Japanese original version and then you have the US version, for decades, a rumor persisted that the film had two completely different endings, two different winners of each fight. And I'm looking at you, Crestwood House. In both films, as far as the filmmakers, and in this case specifically Honda, were concerned, Kong was always the clear winner. While the films use different insert shots and obviously different dialogue focuses on, you know, subject matter and, you know, things of that nature, the ending of both films is pretty much the same, with the single exception that is Kong's singular roar closes out the film for the American release, whereas in the Japanese version, both Godzilla and King Kong roar together. That's it. But there's no maybe, Kong wins the fight and walks away. Now I can hear you out there. Chris, how was this film received? Well, critically, at least in the US, it was rather dismissive, but at the box office, my happy answer to you is, rather well. King Kong vs. Godzilla would go on to bring in for the Japanese release alone $3.58 million. Not bad for a film that cost $620,000 to make. Stateside, the film, again, with the cost of the American version being just tacking on that 15 grand for the reshoots, uh, okay, fine, you can count it as $200,000 if you want to go for what Universal paid for it, but it ended up grossing $2.7 million at the box office, which is not a bad return on that investment for no matter who you are. I don't know if that would even match the latte budget on the new upcoming Godzilla vs. Kong film for the legendary MonsterVerse, which tells you something. Now, as far as reviews go, Variety was rather generous with its review in June of 1963, quick to point out that the miniature work done here by Honda is first-rate, and although the picture is not entirely played for laughs, many filmgoers will find it comically irresistible. Box office reviews were a little more on the nose were knowing where this film's bread was buttered. In their July of 63 review, they had stated that exploitation-minded exhibitors would have a field day with this Japanese import. The story is preposterous, it's loaded with stilted dialogue as it spoofs the monster films, and the special effects are unusual, but they still merit considerable praise. 
I will say, not everyone found this to be their cup of tea. You know, one of my older favorite punching bags, Mr. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. He was not amenable back in the day, commenting that the one mild surprise with this cheap reprieve of earlier Hollywood and Japanese horror films is the ineptitude of its fakery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep walking, old fossil. To date, this film has remained both a pure cult and a pure cheese sort of film. Looking at it on Rotten Tomatoes as of this date, it's sitting currently at 47% with reviewers and only 52% with the audience, and yet it has a warm enough place in all of our collective hearts that it was decided to be remade and it's going to be the next big release that comes out for the legendary MonsterVerse, which changes it to Godzilla vs. Kong. But King Kong vs. Godzilla has a legacy all of its own, and for good or ill, it has seeped into our public consciousness. Oh, and adding to that legacy. Remember when I said John Beck stole the treatment from O'Brien to pitch King Kong battling Frankenstein? Well, that idea never went away. You see, Toho liked the concept of, yeah, let's make a Frankenstein movie, but they pushed it back and, you know, put it on a shelf for another couple of years, and then they rewrote the concept again. They first tried to shoehorn it in to have Frankenstein then later take on Godzilla, but the logistics were too crazy even for them, and it was determined that Godzilla would face off against a different opponent, and they would go back to the Toho pantheon, and they would properly have Godzilla fight Mothra instead. Then, in 1965, they retooled the working script that they had again, and instead of having Big G come out swinging at Frankenstein, they would have the Frankenstein character square off against a brand new kaiju that they created, a monster called Baragon. The story, you ask? Oh, it's simple. During World War II, the Nazis had managed to steal the heart of Frankenstein's monster as they rolled their way across Europe, and of course, they passed it on to the Imperial Japanese Navy to take it to a top research lab that was held in Hiroshima, where of course, as you all know, nothing of significance happened there during the Second World War. Right. So, 15 years post-bombing, they have a young boy who's found to be highly resistant to radiation, and it's also speculated that he grew from the remains of an irradiated Frankenstein heart. You give him a diet of some experimental superfood, and suddenly you have a towering giant Frankenstein roaming Japan. Which is actually good news, because he's around just in time to fight a new horned subterranean monster who's been causing a bunch of earthquakes and destruction. It was called Frankenstein Conquers the World, it's a hoot and a half, and it did well enough to garner its own sequel, which is amazing, and we will probably end up covering one of these days for this show, The War of the Gargantuas from 1966. But that, as they say, is another story for another day. This would also not be the only time that Toho busted out Kong. You see... Kong showed up in a different film in 1967, using the very same ape design that you see here in Godzilla vs. King Kong, or I apologize, I did there myself, King Kong vs. Godzilla. In one of the strangest team-ups between studios, uh, the studio Rankin and Bass, those guys that did the heartwarming stop-motion Christmas specials, the ones who brought us the 80s wonderful cartoon Thundercats, they would go on to work with Toho to make a picture about King Kong being summoned to take on the evil scientist Doctor Who, no relation at all to the British Time Lord, who had himself built a giant mechanical Kong robot 
to use for various nefarious purposes. They marvelously make no sense, and that's just the way we like it. It's just as crazy as it sounds, and it too will most likely be on a future episode here on this show. But know that both these monsters would equally have their time in the sun. The version of King Kong vs. Godzilla screened here at the LSCE was the 2014 Blu-ray release that came pretty much bare bones from the good people at Universal. No trailers, no frills, just the film and some subtitles. And that's okay by me. You can pick up a copy, still for the going rate of about $9.35 on Amazon, or if that's too rich for your blood, you can also get it on DVD for $5.05. Now, I gotta say, credit given where credit is due, the good folks at Criterion released a Showa-era Godzilla box set in 2019. and That's the entire run of Godzilla from 1954 through 1975, the Showa era. And when they did this, and with some of the other films, they gave them much-needed cleaned-up versions, and some wonderful justice was done on providing cool background information, archival interviews, and a host of neat features. Plus, in the case of King Kong vs. Godzilla, you get both versions of this film, the US cut and the Japanese cut. That said, since it's a Blu-ray box set of quality, and it also contains 15 films, it does ring in as being a little pricey. Uh, currently, you can find it, again, on Amazon for $131.40, but I would argue it is money well spent for any kaiju fan. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE to tell you where to buy your media at. We just think in this day and age, it's important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these amazing properties will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that the ultimate point? You want to get more of the stuff that you know and love? Besides, this film is a cult classic, and I can't think of any better way to brighten up a six-year-old's afternoon or anybody who still loves being a six-year-old at heart than sitting down and watching a giant ape duke it out with a monstrous dinosaur. So what are you waiting for? Go out there, get yourself a copy of King Kong vs. Godzilla today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this bonus episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope you'll join us next week as we kick off our new Season 3 and our theme, Drive-In, Drive-Out. That's our curated selection of some questionable drive-in fare that's sure to raise an eyebrow, curve a spine, or make you question a lot of your cinematic choices. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, tell a friend, or hey, just do any of that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street. Today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like the list that we're a part of. That gives us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes that we get, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share more films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. 
As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personal, or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.